On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast with me, Scott Radley, filling in, we are talking to the brand new Pigskin Pete, the Hamilton Ticats' fifth ever human mascot. He joins us, Jeff Connor. Uh, we chat about food packaging. Have you noticed how little food sometimes you get in such gigantic packaging? Uh-huh. Yeah, me too. And, and editorial cartoons have ended at the New York Times. They've decided enough of that. Too much of a headache. We talked to Hamilton Spectator editorial cartoonist Graham Mackay about why this is a mistake and why editorial cartoons are important. Stick around. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Let me bring in right off the bat today um, a guy. First, there was Bill Wirtz, Vince Wirtz first, actually, then Bill Wirtz, then Paul Weller, then Dan Black, and now there is Jeff Connor. The fifth Pigskin Pete ever, whose career as the Hamilton Ticats human mascot begins tonight when the team's regular season opener goes at Tim Hortons Field against Saskatchewan. Jeff joins us now. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing absolutely fantastic. How are you? I'm, I'm excellent. Congratulations. Thank you so much. I'm really, really looking forward to continuing on this legacy. It's going to be awesome. Well, and as I say, I mean, this is, uh, you've probably had a little bit of practice in the preseason, but really this is the time that most people are going to see you for the first time. Yeah, uh, we had a pretty decent turnout for uh, for our preseason game. We actually got a pretty good game out of uh, the game last week. But yeah, the the real thing starts tonight. And to throw on top of that, it's the first game for the CFL season. You know, it just adds a little extra flair. You, um, by the way, does the uh, bowler and the shirt you wear, does it come with a raincoat? <sighs> I'm actually trying to figure out what i got to do about that tonight. I've, it's a waterproof wool on the bowler. I don't know what to do about the jersey, though. I think I'm just going to have to tough it out. If it's a wool sweater, you're going to be a heavy guy by the end of the night, potentially. <laughs> no, only only uh, only uh, current generation jerseys are going to be worn right now. So it's uh, got a little bit of water wicking in it, but who knows what that'll do when it's the water's coming down from on top of you instead of from inside. I, I couldn't help but think today as I was preparing to talk to you that, um, you know, when you think of Vince Wirtz and Bill Wirtz and Paul Weller, uh, they were... Guys who, they were great at the job as pigskin people, but they were before a lot of television coverage. They were before then Paul came and television came, but social media, that came after them. Dan Black, had some, you may be, assuming you stay in this gig for a while, you may be the most visible, the most famous pigskin Pete ever. Wow, that's, uh, I never really thought about that before. Um, Not to make yeah, you nervous or anything. Me. <laughs> no, <laughs> I've got enough to worry about, uh, to be nervous about tonight. Uh, but no, that's, uh, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. And I've, uh, I've got quite a few followers. As soon as I was announced, I had a lot of friends, uh, friends apply for me on Facebook and I got a whole bunch of new followers on Twitter. So yeah, this would be uh it's a pretty big step in terms of people knowing who I am and getting out and about. And I've already been out in the community and, and we did uh, the Tim Hortons camp day uh, a couple weeks ago and that was fantastic and people are just so nice and so accepting and 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 they're just such awesome people that we have as tiger cat fans so i've I've just been overwhelmed with the support that i've got so far you you mentioned that friends were lobbying for you and clearly this is something you had wanted this is not something you were forced into at shotgun point so i mean this is a this is a job a gig a, a thing you want to do what was your reaction when they either called or called you in or whatever and said guess what jeff uh we want you to be pigskin pete um, it was very, uh, <laughs> it was very secretive. Um, they, they called me in the morning they made the announcement and, uh, they didn't tell me why I was coming in and <laughs> I, I just come in and there's this room and it's just, it's all black 
and just sitting on this black table or on this table with a black tablecloth is this is the the hat and i was just like oh my gosh <laughs> and it all hit me all at once and i just i just started like kind of shaking and it all just downhill from there and i was just oh man i was so nervous so i i didn't know what they were going to do i didn't know if they were going to tell me that i won that i lost and i <laughs> i couldn't believe it as soon as i stepped in there i was like I hope that that they're going to tell me that I won and didn't just put the hat here to tease me, but uh, I was I was completely overwhelmed and completely floored. Had you really when I, when I out. had you really considered that you might win? Because I mean, these are kind of things you can put your name up for and go, oh, this would be a lot of fun. And then when it's real, you go, holy jumping! I just I got to do this now. I I really did. Um, I was really really active on social media, and I had a lot of people. Um, from my previous uh, <laughs> my previous life as a professional wrestler that really stepped up and and really got the word out and wrestling fans are some of the most loyal fans in the world up there with Tiger Cat fans for sure that they really wanted to see this come true for me and between them and my friends and family and all of the connections I made throughout the Hamilton school board they really went hard for me lobbying and it, it, seeing all the support I could get I really believed that I could I could make this happen, and I you know my the person that edited the video for me uh, did such a fantastic job in making it look good and making my personality shine through that I really thought I had a really good chance, and I was really <clears throat> intimidated by the other video because it was just as good. So I I mean the, the deciding factor to me was definitely that support that I got from the relationships that I built up over the last few years. You mentioned you were a professional wrestler. What was your professional wrestling name or character name? <laughs> uh, Jim Nye, the science guy. <laughs> so, uh, so were you I a teacher? That, yeah, I'm a, I'm a science teacher, and that's where the character came from. And it that's what your character my, was? It was a science teacher? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so when I, <laughs> when I was a good guy, I would uh, use my knowledge of human anatomy to make uh, my opponents bend and break in different ways. And when I was a bad guy, you know, I'd get... Uh, I'd fill my mouth with a little bit of acid, and when the referee wasn't looking, I'd blind my opponents with some of that acid. <laughs> but I'm also guessing that having been a professional wrestler, the one thing that won't be a problem for you is speaking or performing in front of people. No, I'm, I'm, I'm quite comfortable. And, and being a teacher, I think, prepared me more for wrestling than wrestling prepared me for being pigskin Pete. Being in front of 20 to 30 15, 16-year-old teenagers is a lot more intimidating for, for me than being in front of 20,000 screaming fans of Tim Hortons Field. There's a, a lot more judgment going on in that room than, than people that are there to cheer on your side at, at Tim Hortons Field. So, yeah, it's just been one event leading up to the next between teaching going into wrestling and then wrestling going into being Pigskin Pete. It was just a, a crescendo of, of being in front of people and getting comfortable and finally being in front of such giant crowds that we see at Tim Hortons Field. You're a Hamilton guy, correct? Born and raised. Born and raised. Uh, whereabouts in town? Um, uh, downtown, just off of Barton Street, um, by uh, Gibson, the old Gibson School there. And uh, that's why uh, that's, I try to mention that in my, my video, that I, my whole life has revolved around the Tyrecats. I grew up about 10-minute walk from the stadium. I went to school at Prince of Wales across the street from the stadium. I went to high school at Scott Park, which and our, our home field is uh, Iverwind Stadium when it was still around. And, like, my whole life has just revolved around the Tire Cats. In, in those ways, literally, I've been circling the field for, for the majority of my life. Jeff, do you remember your first Tire Cat game? I don't remember the first one. Um, I remember the first, 
the first real memories I have of, of the Tire Cats was when I got uh, my flag. When I was uh, seven years old, I got uh, a Tire Cats flag for Christmas. And for whatever reason, I decided to take it upon myself to become kind of an unofficial mascot. And whenever the Tire Cats would score a touchdown, I'd run across the stands at Everyone Stadium on the north side um, with my flag. <clears throat> and uh, And that's just how I really got started like entertaining people and the fans really warmed up to me and like there's actually a weird connection here because there was a section there that for some random reason every time i ran by just yelled jimmy at me i don't know why they yelled that that was not my name but that's actually where i got the inspiration for my wrestling name we, we went with jim jim nye the science guy for my wrestling because the people at everyone say him called me jimmy and that was i i did that until i was uh 16 years old i think at the stadium i just kept running and i that was it was so much fun, and, and I, that's really what got my love of the Tire Cat started, was being welcomed by all the fans there. I and how old are you now? I'm 36. 36. So you've, you've seen, obviously you've watched Dan Black do it, and before that you watched Paul Weller do it. You wouldn't have been around for Bill Wirtz before then, but no. uh, you, you've seen them do their thing. When you now take over the bowler hat, do you imitate what they've done because it's what they did is similar to each other, or do you try and come up with something brand new? Um, yeah, I'm definitely inspired by those guys because um, I try and take I try and take certain aspects of what they brought to the role um, and incorporate that into my own personality. the The thing that everybody loved about Dan was that he was uh, he was super hype energy. He had such passion to energy and he was screaming and sweating and running up and down and going crazy. And I like doing that and I like having that kind of um, emotion attached to the tire cats and I have that athleticism to me so I can actually do the stair running and, and not be gassed and get it all done. But the thing people loved about Paul was his approachability. And you could come up to him and you could talk about the football games and you could shake his hand, you could sit down, you could have a drink with him. And that's what I'm that's what I'm trying to do. So when we're on defense, I'm gonna be like Dan, screaming my guts out, getting the crowd going, ch- chanting for our team. And then in between me kind of performing, getting down, sitting down with somebody, asking them how's it to, how it's going, taking pictures, meeting kids. I think that's the one thing that I really look forward to is getting kids invested into the game. And, and at the last, at the preseason game, there were lots of kids that wanted autographs and taking pictures with me. And it was really awesome that they know that already they can come up to me and just uh, get a picture with me and sit down and chat with me and give me a high five. And that's awesome. That's the other part that I'm taking from Paul and that. So I kind of want to be a hybrid between the two guys at the same time, bring my own personality out into it and bring my, my love of football to the forefront for all of our fans and especially our kids. Yeah, because, I mean, you can't really branch out too much, right? I mean, this is a tradition and it goes back almost 100 years now. If you do something completely different, that tradition gets snapped. Yeah, there's a, you know, I want to do something that involves my own personality. We've we've floated the idea of working with more cheerleaders and maybe being involved in some of their dancing sometimes. Like, it's a skill that I actually have. I can actually dance. Um, Don't know if (laughs) if any of the other guys ever did that. Ever used pom-poms? (laughs) <laughs> maybe not the pom poms. <laughs> maybe uh, maybe some uh, maybe some moves at some point. Definitely not tonight. But it's something that is a possibility in the future. And you know we have to take everything with a grain of salt and see how the the crowd reacts to that. But yeah, I, I definitely want to bring more of my own personality into the role while still at the same time honoring our tradition of, of what pigskin Pete means to everybody else. So here's a suggestion for you to try something new to see how it would go. Instead okay. of Oski Wee Wee, Oski Holy Moly. <laughs> <laughs> 
and see if the crowd um, latches onto that as a brand new idea that can be yours alone. Um, that's, that's going to have to be a hard no. That's a really hard no. And, uh, <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Because I didn't really know the impact of, of Oski Wee and what it meant to people until I was traveling. Like, I went down to Las Vegas, and I know Las Vegas had a CFL team, but uh, there was a guy, just a random person there, that he, I was wearing a tire cat hat at the time, uh, and he was like, hey, Hamilton Tire Cats, Oski Wee I'm like, hey, Oski Wee Wee. And he's, uh, he's like, are you from Hamilton? I'm like, yeah, I'm from Hamilton. He's like, I'm like, I said, where are you from? And he says, I'm from Las Vegas. I was like, you're from Las Vegas and you know Oski Weeby? He's like, yeah, I don't ask me how I know what that is, but I know that that's what you guys say. And, like, that's the thing that unites us. It's, it's the cheer, and it's distinctly our own. And, I, I mean, they changed it from, like, Whiskey Wawa mm-hmm. to Oski Weeby at some point, but I'm, gonna, I'm definitely going to leave it where it is right now because it is in a good spot, and it's, it's universal you know, identifier for a tire cat. Absolutely. Fan. You can look at somebody's hat or a toque, just give them a nice Oski wee wee, give them a wave and give them a point and carry on with your day. Okay. True confessions time. You've heard the Oski wee wee cheer probably a billion times in your life. You're now pigskin Pete. You're going to have to lead it. True or false. You have at least once stood in front of a mirror and practiced it to see how you look and to make sure you got it right. Oh, absolutely true. <laughs> absolutely true. I need to make sure that I'm going to the right side, that I've got everything coordinated. I definitely had to practice it because I, I think as a fan, I never really did the motions associated with it while I was in my seat. And then I was like, oh, I got to actually lead the cheer. So yeah, definitely got to practice in front of me or can't, can't mess up the one thing I'm there to do. So, yeah. Well, the yeah, beauty of sure. it, I suppose, Jeff, is that even if you get the words wrong, you're on the field uh, the fans will carry it. Even if you if you had a brain fart and completely forgot what you were supposed to do, you're still going to, it's not like singing a solo. As long as you can do the actions, you'll probably be okay. Yeah, but I mean, there is no way I'm going to forget the words. <laughs> Even though the words don't make a lick of sense, I'm never going to forget Oscar for the rest of my life. Absolutely not. I got only a couple minutes left here, but it, it does seem that in addition to everything else, and I mean, obviously you're very excited about this, but it seems as though you have arrived at this spot at just about the right time. I mean, Montreal, uh, Toronto doesn't look very good this year. Ottawa lost a bunch of players, key players. Montreal is a mess. Uh, I'm not going to say Hamilton has a bye to the Grey Cup, but boy, oh boy, their situation looks pretty darn good for you to arrive at a perfect year. Yeah, and like I've been looking at it and... You know, I, I was looking at the, the predictors for what everybody's saying. Like, everybody's picking the Tire Cats to win the East. And I was like, holy smokes, what if, what if in my first year we get this opportunity to go to the Great Cup? What Pretty if good. I'm at the Great Cup and the Tire Cats are there? Like, my goodness, I don't, I don't even know what to do. And then you add on the fact that we're hosting the Great Cup in a couple of years. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm, yeah, I'm absolutely very, very fortunate that I get that opportunity to, to be here for our Great Cup and possibly, hopefully, this year have a team to represent us at the Great Cup. Is it true, as I let you go, is it true that as you've been figuring this out and working your way through the various points of the stadium and everything else, is it true you got locked out of the stadium at one point? <laughs> yeah, last week I was, uh, I was, it was before the game started, I was trying to figure out how to get from the, the meeting rooms that we were in on the second floor to the first floor so I can get into the stands, and I took the stairs and uh, I was trying to figure out where to go, if I needed to go up or if I needed to go down to go to the, 
to the promenade, and I turned around, and the door locked on me. And the only way for me to go out was go out one of the emergency exits, go back around, go through security, and go back and kind of put my tail between my legs and, and check in through security again. So, yeah, definitely, definitely got locked out. And that I said, I said when I mentioned that 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 stadium is much bigger. It than is a big place. That it is. Uh, Jeff yeah, Connor, the new pig skimpy. You can see him tonight. You kick off at seven o'clock tonight. Season opener down at Tim Hortons Field against Saskatchewan. Jeff. Pigskin, Pete, whatever you want to be called. Uh, have a great time. Congratulations, and I'm sure everybody will be watching. Thanks for doing this today. Thank you very much. And Oski Wee Wee, let's go, Cat. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Scott will be back tomorrow, we believe. It's not that he's off today. He just He's wandering in the woods or something, having a communal moment with nature, and just said, I'm not coming in today. I don't know where Scott is. He's back tomorrow. He's okay. He's fine. He isn't lost. Don't go looking for him. This isn't a wandering situation. A couple days ago, my wife brought home some groceries, as is not uncommon. Thank goodness for her, or I may never eat. Uh, Anyway, one of the things that she brought home was a bag of chips, among all the other things. And it was very kind of the chip company, whose name will remain nameless right now. I won't mention it, although I posted it on Twitter, so you can go look it up if you really want. Anyway, uh, this company, one of their bags of chips, the one we bought, Partially, the bag was partially see-through, which was very convenient because while I was looking at this bag of chips in its unopened state, so presumably, theoretically, it was full. This was a full bag of chips. The chips themselves barely reached a third of the way up from the bottom of this package. A full bag of chips was two-thirds empty. Got me thinking about all the other foods and things, other things as well, but largely foods we buy that are packaged into these wildly oversized packages that are way bigger than the items inside, but that somehow, I think, I guess, the idea is to make us think that we're getting a lot more than we are for our money. Well, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong on this, maybe there's a different reason, but I think it's because they're trying to make us think we're... Or maybe they're taking, thinking we're idiots, really. Let's break it down. Bruce Windsor is a retail expert, a speaker, a consultant, a professor, and an entrepreneur. He joins us now. Bruce, thanks for doing this today. Hey, thanks, Scott. Uh, am I going offline by suggesting that when we have packaging like this, that these are the food companies that are treating like us idiots, that try, treating us like idiots and expecting we're not going to notice? Yeah, you're probably right. I mean, you know, this, the food industry has been around for many, many years, as you know, and a lot of, especially a lot of the legacy older brands, you know, there's certain sort of norms um, or industry standards that have been set um, that are quite ridiculous. And this is one of them, you know, where basically, you know, and everyone kind of knows that when you open a bag of chips, it's like, you know, at least half or two thirds air and the rest is product, right? But this is silly and this has to stop eventually. I mean, consumers eventually won't tolerate this as we have a heightened awareness toward environmental impacts and things of that nature. But there must be studies, there must be market research, there must be whatever that is telling the companies that we still like our stuff in big bags. We like to convince ourselves or believe that we're getting more for our money than we are. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure that that's what happened. I mean, someone probably started this, you know, 50 years ago. And you know what? Research shows that, you know, if, if the pack's too small, then people, you know, people won't buy it as much. But I think that's going to change over time because as you have new demographics coming up like millennials and Gen Z, um, these people have, have pretty much zero tolerance for waste like that. Mm-hmm. Where our generations, you know, I'm a Gen Xer, you know, et cetera, boomers, we had a bit more, uh, a bit more of an appetite for that. We didn't mind it as much. But these newer generations coming up, 
they're you know very much aware of the impact on the environment and they're going to start to punish these brands that don't comply and have this kind of waste this obvious waste i was going to ask you that i was going to ask you if there's a chance that not only does this get sort of called out but that it could play against the companies at some point because they are there's a rebellion of sorts against someone who wastes that much Absolutely. I mean, you know, what normally happens is somehow, somewhere, someone flags this and it travels social media around the world. And you have, you know, millennials and Gen Z saying, and even boomers and Gen Xers, it doesn't mean we hate the environment, but it means we might not have thought about it that way. You know, people start boycotting companies and then companies have to listen rather quickly and they modify things. I mean, it's actually a joke that it's taken this long and the industry hasn't changed. I do wonder if it's um, if it's partially on us, though, if there is something psychologically in the consumer, some sort of sense of optimism or something, that when something comes in a bigger package, it's more exciting somehow. Because, look, when, when you order something even from Amazon or something, now you will sometimes get a box that is five times or ten times bigger than what's inside. And, I don't know, maybe we like it when that shows up. It feels more exciting if it's bigger. Yeah, I mean, definitely there's a psychological play here. You know, the bigger the better, but... It's sort of a false sense of security here. And, I mean, different industries have actually uh, have actually been down this road. If you look at the toy industry, there are actual rules in the toy industry that represent uh, how big an actual package can be versus the product inside it. So that industry has already made adjustments in this regard. And, uh, you know, I think it's just a matter of time that the chip industry is going to do the same because most other industries have already sort of went through this and, and it's just a legacy thing that's there that's, that eventually is going to get fixed. But definitely, I mean, you know, we're humans, humans, you know, you look at something and, and if it looks bigger, you think it's worth more. Right. right? Exactly. So it's definitely our psychology playing on it. Wouldn't the grocery stores, going back to the food for a second, wouldn't the grocery stores be screaming about this? Wouldn't they be wanting the packaging to be reduced for the same amount of product? Because you can have more things, more things on the shelves, more things in the store. These things take up a lot of space. Yeah, it's a great point. And I mean, let's let's remember that there is a chip company out there. Some chips, uh, I forget, I think they're called Pringles or something, but basically they're nested, right? And they're actually yep. sort of the, the anti-bag type thing. But you're right, but it's a double-edged sword for grocers because you're right. They think, geez, I'd like to be able to fit more products on the shelf. You're bang on. I'd get higher returns, et cetera. But then they're terrified of going against, you know, where the industry's been for 50 years in terms of training consumers to look for big bags and thinking that's better value. Would I be wrong in guessing that part of what we're seeing with this also is that, uh, and you sort of alluded to it, but the company doesn't want to suddenly drop the size of its packaging, size of its bag by a half and keep the price the same. This is, this is the company's conditioning us. They're taking a little bit out each time. They're saving money as well. We believe we're getting the same. They're saving money. Absolutely. I mean, and that's something that they don't want to move it. They already have a good thing going. I mean, the gross margin on chips is astronomical, right, that manufacturers make. So, I mean, they don't want to mess with this cash cow, right? They're just just spinning off cash from these products. They don't want to touch it. No one wants to blink first. It's a miracle that Pringles actually had the guts to come out with this, you know, call it 30, 40 years ago, whenever they did. But let's face it, no one's joined Pringles, right? You know, you still see the vast majority of chip-type products being in the bag. Now, there are, though, there are some foods that have reduced and it's very obvious and I'll use another example uh, we had in our house the other day I don't know how they got there because I hadn't seen them in years wagon wheels and when I was a kid if you got a wagon wheel for dessert this thing was the size of two fists I mean it was a full on dessert now I was smaller then I know but now 
these things are tiny. And I'm looking going at when did this thing shrink so much, but we seem they're still there. They must still be selling them. So some have obviously been able to shrink and keep their customer base. Yeah, and there's usually a couple reasons for doing that. One is, um, and, and you know, not necessarily in this specific situation, but it's been very common um, over the last several years for manufacturers to reduce the portion sizes of the food they're selling to keep the prices the same. Because, you know, with, with inflation on, on transportation costs and other things, mm. um, food products have went up, right? So what they're doing is they're shrinking the actual size of the food and charging you the same as it was before. It's sort of a neat little trick to make more profit or to keep price points. Oh, and um, or they can also argue that we're doing this for you. We're helping you keep portion sizes down. This is now exactly, the diet portion. Exactly. That's the other size of it, right? Like McDonald's came out with smaller fries for kids years ago, and they spun it in a way that made it look like, you know, we're helping kids with nutrition by eating less French fries. (laughs) So there's definitely a couple spins you can put on this if you're a big company. The clever marketing companies can make you think that it's a good thing that you're getting less for more money because we are helping you be healthier. Exactly. Is there a, I should ask this, is there any kind of practical reason for this? And I read somewhere that, you know, with chips particularly, but there's other things as well, we put fewer chips into a highly inflated bigger bag because that way they don't bust into a million pieces while they're being transported. Is that a legitimate claim? That probably has some legitimacy to that because, you know, it's sort of like a giant air cushion, right? But do you really need that much? Like, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to use that excuse, why not just have 10 or 20% more, not, you know, 50, 60, 70% more air. So I, I can buy that to some degree, but not to the degree I see on the shelf. Are there products that you could never get away with shrinking and still confusing the customer or convincing the customer that it wasn't going down? I mean, if, if you suddenly, a can of pop, for example, now I know we're trying to get rid of pop. Everyone says it's bad for you, but we are so used to holding a can of pop in our hand. We know what that feels like, that if it were to get smaller, that's something we would notice immediately, right? Well, it's funny you say that, Scott, because you know what? The big cola companies came out with a smaller version of a can about five or 10 years ago. So they kept the original version of the one you're talking about, but they come out with a new micro size. And it's the same thing. They charge you a little less, it costs them a lot less, and they make more profit on those. And what they're saying is that, to your point, they're trying to coax you and say, look, you know, it's smaller, it's smaller portions so you can be healthier. But the in, it, that's an individual portion thing. And so I, I'm wondering if we are so, if we're tactile enough that if it's something that we are used to holding in our hand, and it goes down in size, they'd be scared of doing that because that's something we would notice. That's something we would easily notice. Well, absolutely. I mean, they'd have to do a lot of consumer research before they did something like this because it could backfire big time, right? Um, And they also have to watch out for cannibalization. What that means is that people might be buying too much of the smaller version and their overall revenue would go down because people are trading down too much. So you know what? These big companies, they're going to do a ton of consumer research and find out what the answer is before they even think about launching anything like this. Do you believe, um, knowing what you do about consumers then, uh, do you believe that if we were to walk into a store right now and there were two, whatever, we'll call it bags of chips because that's where we started on this thing. There's two bags of chips next to each other. They have exactly the same amount of product in them. Exactly. The chips inside are exactly the same. One was in a bag that was appropriate to the size, to the amount of the food, and one was in an oversized bag. What percentage do you think of customers would still buy the oversized bag? I'm going to probably say something like 90% because I think that we're, we've been conditioned to it so much. 
Um, and the awareness of it is limited. No one really talks about it, except for you and I today. So it's not really discussed as much. It's one of those things that sort of slid under the covers in society. So it's going to be one of those more is more things. But that might not last, as we've talked about previously. I think as further generations start to explore this, someone eventually is going to make a point of saying this is ridiculous. But if you're correct, and even if you're off by 10%, even if it's 80%, if I'm a company that's making these foods and I'm looking at the packaging, I would be terrified of being the first one to make that step. Absolutely, and that's why they haven't done it. The only time companies will change is when they have to change, when they're forced to change either through regulations or through extreme consumer sentiment that's affecting sales. Okay, so will it be then the millennial or even the post-millennial pressure to cut back on waste and cut back on packaging that will eventually change this? Or will there be a company that says, you know what, we're way behind right now in the chip wars or whatever else, we got nothing to lose, let's try and put ourselves out there as the one and take a huge risk? Because again, it would be a huge risk. I think both could do that. Both events could happen. You're gonna, I think eventually you're going to see millennials and Gen Z have a problem with this. I don't know when. And you're right. It opens up because if you're a, a chip company, and there's a lot of new chip companies out there that are sort of selling healthy chips, mm-hmm. one of them could take a run at this. Because if you're selling healthy chips, you know, it, it's pretty consistent with that message to say we want to be healthy with the environment too. And someone could take a run at it and use this as their differentiator versus the big bad boys. So it could happen. Either event could happen. Ultimately, though, Bruce, is it not us? Does the blame not fall on us for being suckers for not figuring this out? I would say it's partial blame. I would say, in my opinion, it's the blame on the consumer for not caring and not really addressing it. But it's also blaming the industry for not addressing it, too, just sort of doing something that they know is wrong, but keeping it going for so long just because they want profits and sales. It is, uh, it's an interesting one, as I say, because I I would challenge people today, if they're going to go to the store, if they're going to be out somewhere, before you buy whatever you're going to buy, take a look and see what is actually inside the thing. Make a note of it, because I would, again, when when I I saw this bag of chips, and again, I was shocked that they had a see-through bag. (laughs) This was yeah, like, that's really asking for it, eh? That's, that's really... your chin, for sure. That is really brave when you're going to fill it a third full and make it see-through. And it was like, wait a second, <laughs> come on. Uh, Bruce Windsor, retail expert, speaker, consultant, professor, entrepreneur. Appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this today. Hey, thanks. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The New York Times recently had an embarrassing situation on its hands. Uh, In fact, I don't know that embarrassing is really the right word. It was probably more than that. Um, An editorial cartoon got through the vetting process, an editorial cartoon that probably, well, certainly never should have. It was a cartoon that showed Israeli leader Benjamin Netanyahu as a dog with a Star of David leading a blind Donald Trump wearing a yarmulke. Uh, It was widely branded as anti-Semitic, totally over the top, totally offensive to many, many people. So in response... Rather than saying, you know what, uh, our vetting process broke down, we made a mistake, we're going to do better. This will ne- I mean, they said all those things. But in response, the Times also announced this week, yeah, you know, just easier. We're just not going to run cartoons anymore. No more editorial cartoons. We're not, that way we don't have to deal with this stuff. No one's going to be upset. Just take one of the problems off our hands. Well, it's a move that has led to widespread cries of overreaction from all kinds of of corners of the media and non-media world as well, uh, including, I am guessing, 
Haven't heard yet, but I'm pretty sure I know what the answer is going to be from my next guest. Graham Mackay is the editorial cartoonist at the Hamilton Spectator, the wonderful editorial cartoonist. I will always argue he is the best in Canada. We're very lucky to have him here in the city. Uh, He joins us now. Graham, thanks for doing this today. You're always so kind, Scott. Thank you very much for having me on your show. So when you heard this, do you come to the same conclusion I do, that if you just get rid of the editorial cartoons, it's just an easy headache not to have to deal with anymore? That's not your conclusion now, is it? <laughs> no, no, of course. I, I, editorial cartoons are very important to, to newspapers of all across the world. Um, I think this is a, obviously a very special case with the New York Times because the New York Times is on the top of the heap when it comes to newspapers. Um, and you know, as working in the Hamilton Spectator, as well as I do, that um, you know we we look to the New York Times as almost an example to go by, at least when it comes to like figuring out how to do this thing with the internet and how to go from newspaper to the digital format. Uh, obviously, the the big concern amongst cartoonists is that well, if the New York Times is going to do this with editorial cartoons, then what's going to be next? Is this going to happen to all the newspapers across the continent? That's what our big concern is. And we're starting to see that happen with some newspapers in the United States and in Canada. Well, and the reason that when I said that it's a, a headache you don't have to deal with is uh, you what you do... See, the irony of this is what you do, I think the point of your job is to create headaches. It is it is to rile people up. Half the people, I would assume, every day think your work is hilarious, and half the people are infuri- infuriated by your cartoon. And as long as you don't step over a line, that's what you're supposed to do, isn't it? Right. There's, there's boundaries that come with this job, for sure. Um, but, of course, what I drew maybe 15 years ago, 10 years ago, uh, I would have a lot more slack. I guess I could rile up more people back then because, you know, I could rile people up, they would cancel their subscription, and that would just be part of the what comes with having an editorial cartoonist. Nowadays, though, if you rile too many cartoon, uh, readers up, then, you know, the editors are going to take notice, and they're going to wonder, well, is it worth having this explosive kind of thing on our editorial pages? Uh, is it worth having it uh, going forward? Would you describe it as explosive? Is, is that your experience that at times what you do generates that kind of response? Well, I, I think the old-style cartoonists would just draw whatever they wanted to um, without the nuance, just hammer over the head um, on, a, on a particular issue or, or a politician. Um, I, I think nowadays, after you've worked so long in the business, you figure out what's not going to go and what's going to be printed if i'm going to work you know five six hours on a cartoon i want to make sure that it's going to hit the uh the newspaper the next day um and so i kind of had an idea of what my boundaries are i don't want to be i don't want to bore the reader but i also want to make them think as well well and i go back to my point then is is a perfect editorial cartoon then one that makes half the audience laugh uproariously and the other half stew in their own juices you know what? Usually, those are the sort of cartoons that are the ones that people remember. Um, and I've I've done a few of those in my time, and the ones that tick off people all get reaction. And now that we've got Twitter and Facebook, I, I, I hear <laughs> from these people. But then I also hear from the people who like those cartoons. So you get like this, 
you know, back and forth between um, readers, which is great. I can just step back, watch it, and that's what I usually do. Other cartoonists will get into the fray and they'll like engage with their audiences, and that's something I'm I'm not very good at doing. I I prefer to just let uh, people converse. That's that's part of the reason we have editorial cartoonists is to get the discussion going, talk about issues. So you said a moment ago that. Um uh, about the, you've got to be careful. You want to make sure that the, the cartoon gets in the paper after you spend five hours on it. So are there some subjects that you just wouldn't even touch because you know that that's just fireworks? You could uh, look to a recent issue uh, just last week, uh, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls uh, issue on genocide, a very uh, big topic. Uh, a lot of commentators waded into that. I chose just, just to stay away from, from that. Uh, I don't think that serves any good as a white male privileged guy, middle-aged guy to, to, to wade into that whole genocide thing. I don't think it's something that you're going to inflame people. You're going to inflame, um, you're going to get letter writers, but I think for the wrong reason, that's going to deliberately be controversial, I think. And I, I just thought, well, you know what? there are bigger issues in this report to discuss and I'm sort of on the side that the whole genocide thing, while it was a, a great attention grabber, uh, I, I think the more important content was in the recommendations from that report. Are there topics that you are told you can't touch? Do you ever get one where the, the editors come up and say, you may be thinking about doing this today, but yeah, don't even bother. <laughs> I, I have, I've had, some in the past. Um, the local ones tend to be the ones that cause a bit more grief. I remember um, a few years ago, uh, and I think I've mentioned this on your show previously, it was um, it, when McMaster University decided to award uh, Jean Chrétien an honorary doctorate. And it was the same week that Chuck Vite was appearing before the Gomery um, hearing. That's just to say how old I am and how long I've been at the spectator. We're talking about something that happened 15, 16 years ago. But I remember uh, the editor, the editor in chief at the time, um, you know, we, we sat down and discussed what our editorial was going to be for that day. And we were solidly on the side of backing McMaster University in its decision to honor Jean Chrétien. And I was solidly against it. I thought that was bad timing and everything like that. So I did a cartoon without telling the uh, editor. And he saw it and he said, I told you we weren't going to be discussing this as a cartoon idea. And uh, that cartoon was spiked, unfortunately. But uh, hey, it, it's, uh, I still have it if you want to see it. <laughs> Have you have you ever done one that has gone into the paper that has made it through? Maybe not to the degree that this New York Times one that has caused all the stink. But have you ever done one and you're lying in bed that night after the paper has gone to bed and you went, "I don't know if that was a good idea or not." Yeah, I could probably say that about maybe the first ten years of my career. <laughs> Every day. Well, it's more after after several years. I look back on I just slap my, myself on the forehead and say, well, how could I have drawn that? I can't believe I, I got away with that. But, um, uh, no, usually when I draw something, I, I feel okay about it the next day. I know there's other cartoonists out there who 
have second thoughts as they're sleeping, but it, it hasn't happened to me. But, you know, something I draw today or yesterday could easily be looked upon. If I'm still in this job five years from now, I could look back and think, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? Well, okay, so this whole story, and again, if you're just tuning in, this is about the New York Times getting rid of editorial cartoons, largely, maybe almost exclusively, based on blowback from one particular cartoon about Benjamin Netanyahu and Donald Trump and claims of Mm -hmm. anti-Semitism. Uh, and and obviously they got bombarded with negative feedback from this. How often, you said you hear from readers, how often do readers get mad? How often do you hear directly from people that they are outraged by what you've done? I don't hear from uh, readers that much. Um, I to, to get to the New York Times piece, I, I, I haven't actually done a Middle Eastern issue cartoon for, for a few years now, actually, because... Uh, when I would, I often would hear from the local lobby group for the Israeli regime, whoever it would be, and often, you know, it, it's uh, Jewish groups, and they would often come into the spectator, if it wasn't a, a cartoon that I drew, it would be an editorial stance or a, an opinion piece run by some other person that's not even attached to the Hamill spectator, and they'd be in there just taking up the time of editors just telling them, well, they're wrong, and shouldn't have been publishing this. So there's a very strong lobby group for the the pro uh, Netanyahu forces and whoever is in charge of Israel. And often, anti-Semitism is raised as um, the reason why a particular cartoon or opinion piece shouldn't have run. And so we're into that debate, and I've I've seen enough of that. I tend to, to side with the idea that, yeah, it probably went too far because, you know, uh, when, when, when you put in a Star of David, for example, which was shown in that cartoon, you are bringing in a religious symbol, and I think it's perfectly fine to, to raise the anti-Semitism thing. But so often, um, uh, cartoons or commentary that's criticizing just the... Israelis are versus the Palestinians, and it tends to go against the Israelis. Uh, you know, there, there's <clears throat> there's nothing religious about it or anything, and I and I think I think with the New York Times, they just came to the conclusion that um, we're just we're just going to kill the whole genre off. Which and, which I find really interesting about the New York Times for this particular reason is some people who followed news and journalism and stuff long enough. We'll recall that back in 2003, they had a reporter named Jason Blair, who was a star reporter for them, who got found to be a serial plagiarizer. Correct. And at no point that I know of when he got busted and it was horribly embarrassing for them, did they ever say, you know what, we're just going to get rid of the whole reporter thing. (laughs) No. Uh, And so, you know, this one just seems like it's easy. Now, I asked you about the readers. How often do the subjects of the cartoons get angry enough to either speak to you or one of your bosses? Uh, um, Well, uh, years ago they would. I know politicians would sometimes, local politicians would call up, not me, but um, uh, my bosses and say, your cartoonist went way overboard with that cartoon, make them stop and um, and my boss would come to me and say, you know, I, I got a call from such and such, and I think we should lay off that politician for the time being, just because you sort of hammered the, the issues related to him or her uh, for, for too long, and he's off, he's off. So, 
you know, that happens. But, you know, if, if people call up because I'm ta- I'm criticizing a politician way more than someone else, then that just goes with being an editorial cartoonist. And that's when partisanship shows its ugly head amongst the readers. And, you know, I've, I've been called a liberal cartoonist. I've been called a conservative cartoonist. Every uh, political partisan group under the sun, and I try to, I try to use the the the, the definition that I, I all I'm doing is I'm targeting the powers. That's what satire is all about: is to punch up, punch up the people who are in control, the levers of power uh, beyond partisanship. I can go after uh, Justin Trudeau one day, and the next day I'm skewering Doug Ford. And uh, it just so happens both of them are in the, the major positions of power in this country. But if you break if you break it down to what a cartoon is, generally in yours especially, it's it's a great piece of art. It's it's not words. There's very few words in it. It's it's an. I, I'm just wondering why it is that what makes an editorial cartoon so powerful, even more than necessary, maybe a column or a news story or something. What makes an editorial cartoon so powerful that people freak out about it so much? <laughs> well, it's just, uh, you know, people think that, uh, well, my editors will think that people actually read editorials. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think some do, but majority of people really, they pass it by, but they'll see my editorial cartoon, they'll see someone else's editorial cartoon, they'll get the same message by scanning that visual in, you know, three seconds, and they they either agree or they disagree. And then they, they can move on. So I, I think it just it takes little time to get the message across. At least that's the idea of a good cartoon. Um, and and I think people appreciate that medium. Well, it clearly um, has the capacity to influence public opinion very strongly. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, with the New York Times, they obviously don't understand that uh, that power though that comes with uh, editorial cartooning, but. I think with with the New York Times, we're we're dealing with a different breed of paper altogether. This is a you know a, a highly respected newspaper that's read by the most powerful people. You know, you hear Donald Trump, you know, calling it the the lying New York Times or dishonest New York Times. He obviously hates it, but and other politicians on the other side of the aisle think that it's uh, you know it's the, the the record of 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 America right now. It's just the truth is being told. But um, I think the thing about the New York Times is that it, it, it does see itself above other newspapers, and it is the truth, and it, it's almost to an earnest level that it's not going to put in um, these things, these editorial cartoons, these satirical commentaries that are almost beneath the intellect level of the reader of, of the New York Times. So it, there's a bit of a snobbery aspect to it that you get in papers like the New York Times and perhaps even the New, the new Yorker. Um, but you can look to other newspapers around the world, the Washington Post, the Guardian, the Times, the Le Monde. They all have, and they've always had uh, editorial cartoonists. Can, can I make it very papers. simple, though? Can I, can I, and maybe I'm wrong, but when I break it right down, uh, many of the people who would be the subject of editorial cartoons are generally the powerful. I don't remember any cartoons you've done of just Bob, who's a, you know, whatever. Because uh, they have to be recognizable. We have to get what it is. Uh, people who are that powerful generally aren't used to and probably don't like 
being the butt of the joke? I don't know. I think some some politicians expect to be cartooned. Um, uh, I think I think there are there are politicians out there who know that there is a, there's the opposition. There's always going to be an opposition, whether it's a, a, a party leader or political parties. But they also know that they're they're going to have to face you know tough commentary uh, in the media, whether it's you know a, a columnist or editorial cartoons. And I, I know that is true of politicians who will retweet my stuff, even if they happen to be the target of, of cartoons. And I have a lot of respect for those sort of politicians who know that if you're going to be in a democracy, you know, you got to take your fair share of darts from people. I got, I got 15 go seconds. Well, I got 15 seconds. I just wanted to ask you this before I let you go. What do we lose if political cartoons go away? Besides democracy. your job. <laughs> You lose, you lose a lot of of our democracy. This is free expression. Um, I mean, we'll, we'll have these uh, memes and stuff on Twitter, but they don't. You'll you'll have to see a hundred memes, and only one of those memes will be something that actually makes sense and is good. With an editorial cartoon, there's a lot more talent and um, thought. I think that that goes into them. And it's part of our democracy. Uh, Especially in yours, Graham. Uh, As I say, uh, uh, people should uh, look at yours every single day. They can read it at thespec.com. They can go to the Spec Facebook. They can see it in the paper. Uh, Graham McKay of the Hamilton Spectator. Thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show. Weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.